Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Addressing difficult topics with young children can be easier when reading stories or sharing a picture book, an idea central to the High Museum's current exhibition, Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books. Later this hour, we'll hear from award-winning children's author Andrea Davis Pinckney. She co-curated the show with Virginia Shearer of the High Museum. Six months have not passed since the COVID-19 pandemic radically changed our lives. For performing artists and cultural organizations, the end of public gatherings has been devastating. And for those who love to attend live performances of all kinds, questions about safety loom large. What does this mean for Atlanta audiences? Alan Brown joins us now to tell us about a recent survey conducted for the Blank Family Foundation. Alan, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. First, can you tell us what questions were included in this survey? What types of questions were asked of participants? Sure. Well, the idea for this study came early in the crisis back in March when it it became clear to me that we would really need to hear from audiences about how they feel about coming back to cultural programs and facilities. Early on, I contacted my friends at the Blank Foundation and they were so generous in supporting a cohort of organizations in Atlanta to to participate in this study. We have over 500 organizations in the US and Canada and Australia participating in this study. And it's structured as a longitudinal tracking study. And that means that we're collecting data every month or in some cases twice a month in various cities around the country 
to really track how audiences are thinking about uh, going back to cultural facilities. So the questions we're asking are, have they ventured out in public? What are they doing? Are they going to restaurants? Are they using public transportation? Are they making plans to go out to museums, to theaters, to movies? And then really at, at the bottom of the barrel, we're asking it sort of under what conditions would you feel comfortable going out again? And of course, uh, some people are saying they'll wait to be vaccinated. In Atlanta, that figure is about 30% right now. And more people, actually, some people are ready to go out now or as soon as it's legally permitted. That's about 20% right now. And then another 30% when the rate of infections drops to zero or near zero. So all I can say is that there's quite a diversity of, of feelings right now. Many people are very, very cautious, of course, despite the fact that they desperately want to go out again. Lois, it's a difficult picture right now. I wish I could say we had bottomed out and things were on the upward swing, but we're not quite there yet. Now, you mentioned the longitudinal aspect of this study. This particular survey we're talking about was done in May of this year, correct? We started in May, and we've just uh, we finished collecting in August, and we'll be surveying again in another week in uh, September. And these are the same respondents? Well, they're the same organizations. We're randomly sampling audience members across a cohort of about 20 organizations. So we don't ask the same people to take the same survey over and over. It's different people, but they're randomly selected. How did you decide on the 20-plus local arts organizations that are participating? The Blank Foundation for many years has supported the arts sector in Greater Atlanta, and there already existed a consortium of arts and cultural organizations. They're called the Audience Roundtable or the Audience Building Roundtable, and they had been a cohort for many years. So it really was an ideal situation because our study was designed for cohorts. And uh, fundamentally, we're, our job is to help cultural organizations make decision about how and when to reopen. So we have theaters and museums and symphony, opera, ballet in Atlanta and across the United States. For museums and art galleries, it's much simpler because organizations can offer timed ticketing and control the number of people entering. It's easier to practice social distancing because we're not dealing with people seating, right? Seated next to one another. For theater and dance, symphony, opera, comedy, this has been absolutely devastating. And I wondered, in the questions you are posing, how do you reach a conclusion? And at what point is your survey complete? 
Sure. Well, back in March, Lois, I had imagined we would be done by now. <laughs> I had thought five or six months and we'll have the answers we need. And of course, then we had the surge of infections in the southern states and things actually got worse in, in terms of the caution level that we're seeing in the data. So it's clear this is going to go well into next year. Initially, we had focused questioning on venue safety and all the procedures that, that cultural facilities can implement to keep their audiences and visitors safe, like social distancing, like disinfecting public areas, controlling traffic flow and all of that. Now we're learning about ventilation, and I think audiences have to be kind of educated about ventilation and, and that. But Dr. Fauci just said yesterday that he thinks it'll be a year from the time there is a vaccine before people can go to theaters without masks and distancing. And that really was a gut punch. And I think it's problematic because there are arts organizations who are very scrappy and very innovative. And I think what we'll see over the coming months is the opening of many temporary venues, outdoor, many outdoors, but some indoors, where people convert, for example, their lobbies into a small jazz club or they convert the stage of a big theater into a small cabaret. I think we're going to be seeing some really innovative solutions to space so that the people who do feel comfortable coming back will have opportunities to do so. But at the same time, half of all audiences won't feel comfortable going out until there's very little or no risk. At the same time, we have to think about engaging them through digital work. Yeah, and many arts organizations have shown wonderful creativity. I mean, some brilliant work being done with virtual presentation, but there's no substitute for live performance and that sense of communal gathering for live performance. If Dr. Fauci said it won't be until a year after a vaccine, I guess that isn't just after a vaccine is developed. That's after how many people have been vaccinated. So you're dealing with so many unknowns. With the data you have, what responses or results surprised you the most? Well, on a hopeful note, we're asking people if after this is over and it's safe to go out again, if they anticipate going back as much as they did before the pandemic. And 90% of people are saying yes, or they're saying I'll go out even more often. So I think there you know, this, is, this event is being experienced on a mass psychological level and the public need to gather is so profound. And when it's possible to come together, I think we'll see 
an enormous response from the public. But getting to that point is going to be a long and painful sort of clawing back our audiences one by one. <laughs> you know, that could take a year. And, Alan, when you talked about the random sampling of respondents for each month, do you control for age group? Well, we do look at results by age. And what we find, not so much age, but whether people say that someone in their household is vulnerable to a serious health outcome if they were to contract the virus, we call that household vulnerability. About half of all of our respondents are saying they have household vulnerability. And when we probe deep, more deeply on that, we find out it's because they're of an advanced age or a pre-existing health condition or they're caregiving to someone who's vulnerable. So half of audiences say they have this vulnerable situation and that's really influencing much more than age alone whether people are cautious, super cautious, or, or less cautious. And I know from attending symphony and classical concerts for most of my life, and also theater subscriptions, a large part of that, of those audiences are age 55 and up. So, what does it mean for those arts organizations when the bulk of the audience is more vulnerable? Yeah, yeah. Well, it means being cautious. I think the trust is the core idea here, is building trust. And what we see in our data is that trust in public officials is low amongst arts audiences, particularly in Atlanta. Public, you mean politicians? Yes, where early in the pandemic you had disagreements between the governor and the mayor about what was safe. And I think the, the effect of that was people say to themselves, I trust myself. I have to trust myself. And hopefully arts organizations will earn the trust of their audiences by educating people about venue safety, about when it is safe to come back, in what numbers, under what conditions. And there will be people who are ready to come back earlier because they're just so hungry for the experience of live art. Uh, it's, it's just so essential to, to the lives of so many people. But on the same token, there will be many folks, particularly those who are older, many of whom are great supporters of arts organizations, who are not ready to come out until there's virtually no risk. And I think focusing on them and how to serve them and help them feel included in programs, despite the fact that they can't come to the live programs early on will be key to their success. So that's why digital is so important. Learning about live streaming, it's not for everyone, but for many it is, particularly orchestras and other music organizations. I think what we're seeing now is sort of the wild west of digital content. Everyone, <laughs> everyone is getting into it, and it's incredibly exciting. 
what's happening now and people are really figuring out if it's for them or not. Well, again, you get creative people and they come up with some amazing programming. Will your partnering organizations continue to conduct these surveys for the foreseeable future? I certainly hope so. We have, um, as I mentioned, over 500 organizations. Our study is being deployed nationally in Australia. They're uh, just coming off their third cycle of data collection. We have cohorts of performing arts centers across the U.S. and Canada, also in the study, youth theaters, small and mid-sized arts organizations in Los Angeles. I mean, it's such a diverse cohort. And clearly, we will continue well into next year. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure what form the data collection will take if this stretches out longer than sort of nine months. No, no one counted on that. But thanks to the foresight of foundations like the Blank Foundation, the arts groups have the support they need to gather this information and really help them make decisions about how and when to start programming again. Alan Brown, principal of Wolf Brown and Audience Outlook Monitor. There will be more information about the survey and the Blank Foundation's Audience Roundtable on our website, wabe.org citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. As tomorrow marks the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month, this seems a good time to hear some Mexican music. Last fall, I spoke with Alejandro Cifuentes and Jonathan Urizar of Mariachi Buos de Oro, which translates as the Golden Owl Mariachis, a nod to their school, Kennesaw State. How does a group of classically trained music students in North Georgia end up forming a mariachi band? The answer encompasses different types of love. One of the things that inspired me to start playing mariachi music was love. So, I, oh. yeah, I was in, very much in love with a girl and I wanted to serenade her. Uh, so I was like, well, there's, I love mariachi music, so I'm going to you know, talk to a couple of my friends here and just make our own. And so I contacted Jonathan here and also my friend Michael Pena, who plays trumpet. And it was Jonathan on violin, Michael on trumpet, and then myself on guitar and singing. And 
we went up on her birthday and sang happy birthday or las mañanitas as as we we call it in in Mexico and yeah she really enjoyed it and ever since then we we kept on having mariachi in our lives it's also maybe worth noting that it's a pretty traditional thing that happens to serenade your loved one uh, many people hire mariachi bands to come and uh, show show up to your loved one's window very very early in the morning oh. usually five six seven a.m sometimes and it's a surprise to everyone uh, or rather to your loved one everyone else is usually in on it would you tell us about the name of your group the name of our group is mariachi bulls de oro uh, translated literally from spanish that means the golden owls all right and we decided to name it the golden owls because of the school that we, we all went to, which is Kennesaw State University, in honor of, of our mascot, Scrappy, I think is his <laughs> name, <laughs> right? That's right? And so that's, that's where the name came from, truthfully. Why is it important for you to keep mariachi music alive? I think especially in the region of the country in which we live, it's, it's especially important because it almost doesn't exist on this half of the country. There, there are mariachi bands other than ours in Georgia. There are a handful, but uh, it's got a much wider reach in the Western United States. There are programs in the West, in the public schools, that actually teach mariachi to young students. And, really? Uh, where oh, yeah. th- and that's very much not the case here. And so it's, it's especially important for us to keep this tradition alive. And the repertoire is so marvelous. Mm-hmm. You perform works by mariachi composer Jose Alfredo Jimenez. Would you talk about the significance of Jimenez in Mexican music and culture? Sure. So, you know, Jose Alfredo Jimenez was probably one of the main reasons that I started doing mariachi and fell in love with with the music itself. He was the most prolific uh, songwriter in Mexico up until now. If you go to, to a mariachi concert, there's probably a 30, 50% chance that the song you're listening to was written by him, especially if it's a love song. But I think that he really helped carry mariachi music from not only being recognized as kind of a rural uh, ranchero sort of sort of feeling in, in, in its essence to being more romantic and a little deeper, having like uh, more of like, what's the meaning of life? Hmm. Uh, we have a few of Jimenez's compositions, which you've recorded. Would you tell us about his song, Si Nos Dejan? Okay, Si Nos Dejan is one of our most popularly requested songs. It's a, it's a love song about uh, forbidden love. The opening of the song is very catchy. I think a lot of people hear it, and it, it it's one of those earworms. I think that just gets stuck, <laughs> just it's stuck with you all day. Uh, and I think love is a it's a universal theme that anyone can relate to, regardless of the genre of music you're listening to. Si nos dejan, nos vamos a a vivir a un mundo nuevo yo creo podemos ver el nuevo amanecer de un nuevo día yo 
pienso que tú y yo podemos ser felices todos. Paloma Querida. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Paloma Querida is um, one of his earlier songs. I actually think it's he wrote it before Si Nos Dejan. And it's one of my favorite songs because he wrote this song in a way to propose to his wife. Um, it's an incredible story. preserves that like ranchero feel it's it's kind of like music from from the countryside of mexico it's very folk sounding uh, a lot of the the melodies is slow and in thirds usually um and usually in, in three four time and waltzes. pretty pretty so yeah it's very waltzy so there's there's a lilt exactly yeah. and you know you know you never it never goes too fast it's more about the story that it's telling Jonathan, you are the concertmaster of the DeKalb Symphony Orchestra. That's correct. You've had a wide range of experience performing with other ensembles and orchestras. You have played with the likes of Robert Spano and David Coucheron, as well as Charlie Daniels, I read. As a soloist, how do you approach playing such different styles? I think classical music and just all the wide ranges of music I've been fortunate enough to be a part of have given me a wide range of flexibility in the way I approach mariachi music. It's a very charismatic style of music. And you have to sort of bring a, a certain type of character to it. Uh, you have to be almost in your audience's face a little bit with, with your emotions because it's such a dramatic style and genre of music. You have to kind of bring a certain type of, of a almost like a, a Spanish bullfighter sometimes mm -hmm. when, I, when I think passion. of the character, just very passionate passion music. and, and, and I, no self-restraint. I should also mention my parents are from Honduras and Guatemala, so mariachi music isn't actually any anything that I grew up listening to. But I think it was my my freshman year of college, maybe before I actually listened to anything in depth. And so it's been a completely unique challenge for me to interpret this music. But it's been it's such a blast to, to get to do it. It's That's wonderful. Alejandro, you also play the vihuela. How would you describe the instrument? It's beautiful to look at. Yeah, definitely. So the vihuela looks very similar to a guitar, but shrunk a little bit kind of like if you put it in the dryer um not, <laughs> not quite, don't try that no <laughs> uh, not quite as small as a ukulele though somewhere in between alejandro cifuentes on vihuela and violinist jonathan urizar 
of Mariachi Buos de Oro. Tomorrow marks the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month. Explaining history to young children is not easy when that history is filled with struggle and violence. Coretta Scott King award-winning author Andrea Davis Pinckney has written numerous books about African-American culture for children and young adults, including award-winning picture books illustrated by her husband, Brian Pinckney. Andrea Davis Pinckney is the guest curator of a new exhibition at the High Museum, Picture the Dream. She joins us now with Virginia Shearer, the Director of Education at the High. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's nice to be here. What inspired the exhibition Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books? Well, Lois, the children's picture book is perhaps the best vehicle for sparking conversations with parents, young people, about complicated issues. And as the world unfolds, as we see young people becoming activists themselves, as we look at history as it relates to civil rights, we came together and we thought, what a remarkable way to present these topics to children and families in a museum setting. It's the first exhibition of its kind. There has never been a show that features the work of children's book illustrators illuminating specifically the history and path of civil rights. And uh, it seems just like the, the right time and the right moment and the perfect vehicle. Andrea, what is it about children's books that allow the reader to comprehend difficult topics in a less disturbing way? Well, Lois, think about the children's books that perhaps you grew up with, or I grew up with, or we all grew up with. I have fond memories of my own parents reading to me and talking about what we were reading. The beauty of a picture book is just that, the pictures. So when a child is experiencing a picture book, it's not just the words, it's the visuals. And usually in most picture books, those illustrations are telling their own stories. So if a kid never reads the words, they can look at those pictures and experience an emotional reaction or attachment to what is happening. And again, with civil rights, how beautiful is that? I can sit with a child, we can look at the pictures, and we can have the visual story of civil rights in a way that you don't get in other vehicles and other kinds of books. No. Oh, I wish these books had been around when I was growing up. When you were asking me about the books my parents read to me, nothing with the depth and meaning that your books provide. I'm thinking about Boycott Blues, how Rosa Parks inspired a nation, which you wrote and your husband, Brian Pinckney, illustrated. And in addition to 
loving that you cast this story in the form of a blues song and that the narrator is this great hound dog who is singing the blues. You do not shy away from the scariness of what was at the core of her heroic gesture, the image that Brian Pinckney draws for Jim Crow is literally a crow. And it's a menacing, whirling presence on the page that's scary. And I think it's just such a marvelous point for discussing what it was that Rosa Parks achieved. But I was hoping you would also talk about how you cast the narrative. Because in addition to evoking the blues, you also have what feels like the language of some church elders with "Uh uh-huh and child. Would you talk about that? Yes. Well, Boycott Blues, How Rosa Parks Inspired a Nation is a collaboration between myself and my husband, uh, illustrator Brian Pinckney. We had a lot of fun working on that book, and it's for the reasons that you described, Lois. We made a decision very early that we wanted to invite young readers on a journey, on the journey of the Montgomery bus boycotts. And the best way to do that would be to provide them with language that has musicality, is accessible, is in some respects fun. Because when they come on that journey and they're with us and they are experiencing the blues through the the guitar of of that hound dog and walking those steps, then we can usher them into some of the more complex realities of what that boycott meant. Um, Interestingly enough, this year, 2020, as we embark on the Picture the Dream show, it is the 65th anniversary of Rosa Parks giving up her seat on that segregated bus. So it all came together. And yes, Brian's illustrations also provide, again, as I mentioned, that visual narrative where we see Jim Crow and his bony wing, you know, peck, peck, pecking with his beak at the folks who are enduring a year's worth of marching. So it is the marriage of words and pictures that invite young readers on this journey and allow the adults who are in their lives to have these conversations. Did you have a melody in mind or a particular blues song? Lois, I was working from the canon of blues music, which (laughs) if you listen to it, you know, it's very like, it's very gut bucket blues, you know, it's very from the gut. And that's how it felt when they were marching, you know, they were coming from the gut, they were going from the inside, they were enduring, they were marching, they were not giving up. It was sun, it was rain, it was uncertainty. And uh, that's what you get from a lot of blues music, a very emotional core, and you're just going along and you're sticking with it despite the heartache. And that's what we were conveying with Boycott Blues, How Rosa Parks Inspired a Nation. And then in the end, you have both a narrative and a visual metaphor 
with blue. Would you talk about what blue means by the end of this story? Yes. Well, the blues is the narrative kind of refrain throughout. And in the end, the narrative does say, you know, blue is a mighty fine color when it's welcoming the dawn. You know, we can look at blue, the blues and blue in many ways, that it's hope on the horizon, that it's the openness of a sky. And uh, again, it reminds us that we, we go through, we endure, we stick with it, and there's always tomorrow. And uh, which really speaks to the, uh, one of the final sections in the exhibition, which is today's journey, tomorrow's promise. Again, we can go on that journey and have a promise of tomorrow. And that's what we're, we're hoping young people will embrace and continue to move forward with that idea. Sit in. How four friends stood up by sitting down is another book that you collaborated on with your husband. Would you talk about how you approached telling what is essentially a violent story in a way that children can grasp and yet not turn away from. Yes, Sit-In, How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down is the story of the 1960 Greensboro, North Carolina, Woolworth sit-in. Four college students go into a Woolworth lunch counter. They refuse service because they're African-American. And so the book begins with a big, bold quote by Martin Luther King Jr. We must meet hate with love. We must meet hate with love. So when you open the book, you see that bold statement in big letters. And then in the spirit of inviting readers in so that they can sit at that lunch counter with the characters in the book, with the four students, um, you know, there's the narrative refrain, they sat straight and proud and waited and wanted a donut with coffee and cream on the side. Those kids didn't budge. They didn't move. Until they were served, they refused. All they wanted was some food, a donut with coffee and cream on the side. And I know that when I share that book with kids who have read it again and again and read it with a parent or a caregiver, you know, they come back to me with that refrain. They sat straight and proud and waited and wanted a donut with coffee and cream on the side. So again, it's the musicality that brings them into the narrative and allows them to uh, experience some of the complexities of, of what happened on that day in 1960. Yeah, but you don't shy away from the terrifying aspect of what those four friends and others faced with coffee being poured down their backs and ketchup on their heads. And you have read this in public settings, I'm sure, as well as to young children close to you. What do they say? What has been the reaction when you get to that part of the story? Well, Lois, you're right. We tell the stories of civil rights and we really tell the stories of civil rights. So there are the unpleasant aspects that young people, my my husband, Brian, the illustrator, and I really feel that we can't shy away from young people really need to know about that. 
So yes, in the book Sit-In, we talk about the scalding hot water poured on their heads, the ketchup on the shirts, the mustard, the spitting in the face, the pepper in the eyes. And when I talk to school children about that, I walk them through what happened. And I say, I want you to listen for a moment. If you left school today, you go with your friends, you're sitting down in a, in a restaurant and you glance over and you notice there are four people who are not being served and you're eating. What would you do? And I say to them, don't raise your hand, don't call out. Just sit with that question for a moment. Well, of course, all the kids raise their hands and call <laughs> out, you know, oh, I would do this, I would do that. And I say, let's just sit quietly for a moment and, and think about, I'm eating and there are four people over there who are not being served and they're not eating. I then invite them to raise their hands and they all, you know, it, it's such a testament to the, the hope of young people. They say, I would give them my food. I would, I would talk to the manager. I would talk to the waitress. I would walk out and, uh, you know, I challenge them a bit. I say, oh, come on. You would really go talk to a grown up. You know, what if your friends don't like you anymore? And then I flip it and I say, now you go into the lunch counter. You're hungry. You didn't have breakfast or lunch. Your stomach's growling. You're kind of not in a great mood because you're feeling so, you know, your tummy's so rumbly. And you sit there. Nobody brings you a menu. People are ignoring you. And all of a sudden, somebody pours scalding hot water down the back of your neck. They put ketchup and mustard. They squirt it all over that beautiful shirt. And they spit in your face. And they take the pepper shaker. And they throw that pepper in your eyes. What would you do then? And the, the hands don't go up so quickly. They do think about it. And they give me honest answers. You know, fourth graders tell me, I would fight back. I wouldn't allow that. There are fourth graders who say, I would sit there. And I challenge them. I say, oh, come on. You're going to sit there and let somebody pour scalding hot water on your head. And people say, yes, I would, because I don't want to start a violent protest. So these are things young people are talking about, thinking about, and through the art form of the picture book, experiencing. And what you are describing in the children's reactions, even the initial reactions about wanting to help the four who aren't being served, attests to the idea that literature should be about empathy. And that's what you are conveying here. I know that sit-in how four friends stood up by sitting down will become a play in conjunction with the Alliance Theatre here. Is Pearl Clegg the playwright who is adapting the book? Yes, Pearl Clegg, friend, colleague, poet, playwright, novelist, activist, Atlanta resident, um, all around uh, powerhouse. Uh, national learned, treasure. National treasure, absolutely. When I learned that Pearl would be doing the adaptation, as one can imagine, I could not be more thrilled. And it's just been a pleasure to see how Pearl has brought a, a modern spin to the sit-in idea uh, in the play that is being produced by the Alliance Theater that will ultimately become a, a virtual experience. But again, Pearl has done a brilliant job in modernizing some of the aspects of what a protest is, what nonviolence is, 
and the characters in the play are young people who are standing up for issues that are of more modern concerns, in addition to race, issues of climate control, the environment, and uh, weather. Uh, again, activism never ends. She is brilliant. She is brilliant. I can't wait to see the play. Virginia, picture the dream marks the High Museum's fifth collaboration with the Eric Carl Museum, which is devoted to the art of the picture book and especially the children's book. How did collaborating with the Eric Carl Museum influence the way you present these works at the high? Thanks so much for asking the question, Lois. I was just saying to Andrea, you know, before we got on that collaborating with the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art has made me a a better educator uh, personally, but it's also made the High Museum, I think, a better presenter of our exhibitions for children with children in mind. They just do such incredible work up in Hamhurst at this purpose-built museum that has children at the center of their mission. They are our co-organizers for this exhibition. We began talking with them more than three years ago about wanting to do this kind of project around the civil rights movement and history and about around all these incredible books. And immediately the Carl was thrilled to join us in being thinking partners and knew that they had wonderful works in their archives, in their collection that could be part of this, but they also knew on their board of directors that they had the perfect curator. And so we were able through this partnership to invite Andrea Pinckney to be the curator of this show, to be the visionary, to be our guiding light in pulling something together that is unlike anything that the high has ever done. We have done these monographic single artist exhibitions with the Carl in the past, and they've been extraordinary and powerful for our audiences. But this is a multi-artist exhibition. This is really, as we've noted, this is important content that children and families and caregivers and grandparents and neighbors and friends need to be thinking about, talking about, learning about. And as you've heard from Andrea, she was the perfect person to be our curator for this. So it's a very generative relationship and I cannot say enough good things about the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book (laughs) Art. It's a special place. Well, I think it's a feather in the cap of the high that you have this partnership and that you were able to connect with Andrea through it. Andrea, I enjoyed reading that you and your husband have two young children. May I ask their ages? Yes. Well, our children aren't so young anymore. (laughs) We have a daughter who is 24 and a son who has just turned 21. I wondered if you still try out these stories on them. 
we absolutely still involve our children in our collaborative work. Uh, in fact, just yesterday, my husband Brian had brought home some preliminary work for a new book that he is uh, working on. And our son, Dobbin, we all sat at the dining room table and looked through the artwork and you know, had a great exchange about Brian's illustrations. So they're very much involved and uh, we value and often solicit their feedback. Reading these books by other artists whose works will be part of the exhibition Picture the Dream just reinforced the notion that picture books don't have to be limited to children to appreciate the topic, the drawings, or spark conversations. I'm intrigued, Virginia, with the fact that discussions for this exhibit started three years ago. This was before the global reckoning now that we have about racial injustice. Certainly three years before John Lewis's death. For both of you, what does it feel like to be opening this exhibition on activism? now? Well, when we embarked on the exhibition, again, on the the kind of genesis of it in the beginning three years ago, we never could have imagined that the time in which it was opening, when the high was literally hanging the paintings on the wall, that outside, as you say, Lois, you know, there was a, a global movement around Black Lives Matter. Of course, Black Lives Matter had been, uh, you know, doing some wonderful work and that there was a lot of activism going on. But for Picture the Dream to be opening at this historic moment, it could not be more relevant. And it speaks to the power of literature to foster those conversations and that journey. And again, it's, it's so timely with the recent and unfortunate passing of Congressman John Lewis. It is the perfect opportunity for children, families to come together around these issues. Um, I wanna mention too that as I started to say previously, Lois, the exhibition is divided into three key sections. So the sections are a backward path, what it was like before today, segregation, Jim Crow, separate and not equal, what happened, that's part two of the exhibition, The Rocks in the Road. What came as a result of so many injustices, lynchings? Uh, what came as a result of those things? And that part two is The Rocks of the Road. So marches, protests, people coming together. And then the final part of the exhibition, part three, Today's Journeys, Tomorrow's Promise. And that's where we are today's journey. We are on this journey together and we have young people who are the readers of picture books, you know, young people out there fostering tomorrow's promise and making the future something that we can all feel good about. Mm. Virginia, will this exhibition be available online as well as on view at the museum? Excellent question. I will say the exhibition is slated to travel. So it will go to the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art in the spring. 
And we, on our website, will have a lot of content uh, in addition to images from the exhibition. But the real thing is the best thing. And so we do encourage everyone to come and see these works of art at the High Museum in person. They're extraordinary. I've just been saying, you know, to Andrea, they glow. They draw you in these works of art. They're incredibly detailed. They're so beautiful and impactful. And our galleries are quite modest right now. Everyone knows the high to be a very busy place. Right now, it's a very reflective place and a very respectful place where people are very respectful of social distancing and all of the kinds of things that we have to do. But it, it is a, a spiritual experience within the museum right now. And I can't think of anything really more spiritual than being in Picture the Dream. It's, it's really special. Virginia Shearer of the High Museum and award-winning children's author Andrea Davis Pinckney co-curated Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books. The show will be on view at the High through November 8th. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.